0: I pray that I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the last sermon I preach here as a canon of St. Paul's. And those of you who know me will know that I'm likely to have looked for a poem to express something poignant and insightful on such an occasion. Well, no. But I did find this which seems to fit. The vicar was leaving the parish. He went round to say his goodbyes, but had rather a shock when one of his flock, a lady, had tears in her eyes. Now, there's no need to cry, said the vicar, there have to be changes, you see, so you must be strong and before very long, they'll send someone better than me. That's all very well, said the lady, despondently shaking her head. But that's why I'm grieving for when he was leaving, that's just what the last vicar said. It's a bit of a strange thing climbing up here, in case you've ever wondered. As a preacher, you know that when churchgoers are interviewed, and asked to name the top three things they look forward to about going to church, always in the top three is a good sermon. Unfortunately, when asked what the top three things are that disappoint them about going to church, there in the top three is the sermon. So as you climb up here, you know that many of you out there are hoping that this is going to be resonant to your life, but also that you're probably discreetly now unwrapping a suite and settling down to low expectations. Another sermon with a beginning, a muddle and an end. At worst, the whole exercise is just the bland leading the bland. Now there's nothing new about this. In 19th century Denmark, the philosopher Kierkegaard was telling a story about a church of geese where aged gander gets up into the pulpit and preaches from a great height and tells all the geese in the congregation that they have wings which they must use to fly majestically And each Sunday, the geese listen, and then they waddle back home, only to return next Sunday for the same thing. When someone asks why none of them actually does fly, the geese look perplexed by the question. Kierkegaard concludes this. The trouble is, not that Christianity isn't voiced, but that it is voiced in such a way that the majority eventually think it's utterly inconsequential. The highest, the holiest things make no impact whatsoever but are given sound and are listened to as something that now has become routine and habit like everything else. It doesn't have to be like this. In fact, if this is a Christian place, it mustn't be like this. The first thing the first gospel says about Jesus is that he came preaching. He believed in words, believed that words can change lives and hearts and brains and behavior. He believed they might open the window a little onto God, onto you. Later, they even said he was a word the word who became human and that all words about him afterwards have to become human too. They have to translate themselves into the priorities we live by, the goals we set, the way we think, the actions we decide to do or don't do. And of course we're sitting now on a site where great preachers have celebrated this stored potential Of words, the graceful irritations of language. John Donne and his sermons were 50 minutes long, so count yourself lucky. To Martin Luther King, Jr, whose message was never, I have a nightmare, but I have a dream. And the dream had to start here, in the pulpit, so that others could hear and be caught up in it too and then work to bring it about on earth as it is in heaven. Canon Sidney Smith in the early 19th century preached here regularly. The description of him is one I rather admire. He was one who reasoned liberally, illuminating civic wisdom with Christian charity, political judgment with social wit, and common sense with uncommon insight. Do that and well, people might just actively listen and not just waddle home. So it seems right now that as I wonder what I'm doing here and how to go about it when I am, I find myself with you celebrating John the Baptist. Now I spoke just now of churchgoers being interviewed for research and not too long ago in Durham 77% of those asked said they wanted a sermon that challenged them and 66% said they wanted a sermon that motivated them. They don't want the sermon to be a bedtime story something that makes you drift off with a little tingle. They said and I'm trusting they meant it, did they? They said they wanted challenge, not needlessly provocative, but provoking new perception, new energy, new willpower, even perhaps a new them. So step forward, John the Baptist. He was a preacher. The prayer that we just said amen to outlined him rather well. We just prayed that, according to his preaching, we will say sorry for the way our lives go on bad tracks, and that we will constantly speak truth, boldly rebuke vice, and patiently suffer for the truth's sake. I'm guessing that no one walked home from the Jordan and shook John's hand then and said, nice sermon, vicar. No, what happens instead is that they cut his head off, the place where his tongue lived, the place where the words came from. They silenced him, he'd appeared in the desert A barren, dry, thirsty place that symbolizes the world we've created. And it's quietly indifferent and quietly desperate there. And here comes John, like an air raid siren, someone speaking again the language of God. Someone who's looking into the future to see where this life we've created is all going to end and reports back. Very quickly, before it's too late. Someone urgently telling us to take a look at ourselves, admit where we've gone inhuman, telling us to uphold what is just and not just compromise. Someone who asks us, for God's sake, to be a citizen of a kingdom of love and not a consumer in the world of competition. We are Consumers, consuming away the environment we live in and breathe, consuming our hearts in envy, consuming away compassion towards those who so need it. So anyone who tells you that belief in God shouldn't be mixed up with political consequences, well, show them John the Baptist, show them Martin Luther King, show them Archbishop Tutu, show them William Wilberforce, show them Elizabeth Fry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Edith Cavill, Janani Lewum, Esther John, Bishop Jean Robinson, and ask, how can they speak the truth, rebuke injustice and evil, and suffer for God without political consequences? They were following Christ. Who? If he were just a man who spoke nicely about spiritual things with no threat to the establishment or the status quo, why did they execute him? Speaking for them all, Archbishop Desmond Tutu has said, I don't preach a social gospel, I preach the gospel period. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the whole person. When people were hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you because the good news to a hungry person is bread. When you're ill, I heal you. If you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you're neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. So, finally, back to preaching. Those who dare to preach have to be brave. They're called to dispel human illusions without leaving them disillusioned. They invite the world to be reimagined they're willing to sound implausible as they push the words God, mystery, love, eternity back into our landscape that's very nearly lost the echoes. I have a feeling, and I certainly have a hope, that this pulpit will be busy in the days that lie ahead. because. When presidents start saying these aren't people, they're animals, wanting to infest, when children are used as bargaining chips, when parliaments in European countries are passing laws to imprison those who seek to help those looking for refuge, when judicial independence is being removed in another European nation. When interior ministers are calling for a purification and cleansing neighbourhood by neighbourhood. When opera in a European country has now to cancel its performances of Billy Elliot because a media campaign is saying it will turn children gay and promote deviance, when abuse and discrimination are just the way it goes, in church as much as anywhere else, when states of emergency mean states of control and imprisonments of lawyers, journalists and amnesty workers, when human dignity is being shrugged off as human rights are laughed at because, well, we're not talking about mine. When we see that this is our world now, not the 1930s, now, then this pulpit better get busy, because it's all contrary to the gospel, to the dream of God's kingdom for all people that this place is built to proclaim. I hope this will be a fountain to draw fresh water of a different way of being human. This pulpit is here to make Christians stand for something, not fall for anything. And we stand for love. Eric Freed's words then seem the fitting way to end a last sermon. It's nonsense, says reason. It is what it is, says love. It's unhappiness, says caution. It's nothing but pain, says fear. It has no future, says insight. It is what it is, says love. It's ridiculous, says pride. It's foolish, says caution. It's impossible, says experience. It is what it is, says love.